So the first group is, you guys want to? Okay, so I'm going to pass it over to them. So we started by talking about um, the value of post-disciplinary structures in the academy. And um, there was some debate about whether, in fact, some people thought that maybe just post-disciplinary work might be a guise for kind of this neoliberal pragmatic orientation. Um, um, and, and the idea is that if there were no disciplines, then people would be able to uh, study what they wanted for perhaps individually or socially determined ends, but there was a worry, as she was saying, that that would be co-opted by a kind of, um, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure what that part of the discussion was about, actually. Uh, sorry about that. But actually, so to begin, we're going to talk about what post-disciplinarity was compared to inter interdisciplinarity. Uh, post-disciplinarity was about about um, <laughs> so I think we, we kind of went in the direction of uh, defining post-disciplinarity uh, as um, having the disciplines not be uh, co-opted into this uh, you know neoliberal discourse thing. Um, and um, we discussed the question whether, you know, disciplines are good or it's good to have disciplines or it's bad to have disciplines. Um, and one important point that was raised uh, was, uh, like somebody mentioned something about economics, and they said that um, um, because uh, economics is a well-formed discipline that, uh, and it has like these boundaries protecting it, then people in economics uh, are not able to, to study you know, things about the environment, that they don't have a clear picture about that, or uh, they, because they're, uh, they're not you know, inspired to do like, transdisciplinary work, they don't have an accurate image of you know, labor and, uh, and so on. So from this point of view, disciplinarity would not be a good thing. Um, and uh, yeah. Um. Some of the, so the idea that having professional standards and having boundaries to a discipline would insulate you from political pressures from the outside. So that was one idea, but then somebody brought up a point about how disciplines may have their, their boundaries not just for reasons of sort of academic integrity and for being able to specialize their jargon, but that the, the delineation of different disciplines um, enables a kind of competition between disciplines for uh, access to the the scarce resources of the funding stream. And so thinking about it in those terms um, can help us imagine what post-disciplinarity would be, where they're not competing for each other, competing against each other for scarce resources, but instead they could kind of pool their resources together for socially determined ends or individually determined ends. And so that was where we, I think we were able to delineate post-disciplinarity from interdisciplinarity which we thought of as a kind of mere add-on to the existing disciplinary structure. Since we have just a little bit of time left, the other um, kind of structure of our conversation or what emerged was um, how our positions in academia, what we're doing in academia, um, relate to activism, relate to social movements, and what the bridge is there. Um, there were some concerns, you know, by participating in academia the way it is, are we perhaps reifying it, and in fact, what can we do as academics, as
teachers, as um, activists to kind of infiltrate the practice in the system and um, transform the nature of the university. Yeah, and somebody expressed frustration saying that they knew the game was BS, but every day they have to play it. And so somebody proposed that we would talk about things, small things that you could do day to day or very specific proposals that we could kind of chip away at that might help us get out of this problem. And so people, uh, he brought up the ranking system in particular, that a lot of universities will compete with each other for these very narrow criteria um, that they're ranked based off of. And uh, you could find ways to shame the university, and shaming we agreed was somehow an effective mechanism in some instances. Um, but other people said that you could add different criteria to the rankings, you could boycott rankings. Uh, we didn't really hammer out what that might look like. Um, some of the other things were peer-reviewed journals. There were very few of them. Um, they promote a very particular kind of writing for each discipline. Uh, the peer-reviewed journals, in one anecdote that someone relayed, there was a head of a peer-reviewed journal and he was blaming the people in, at, the, at the university for not boycotting them and kind of putting the onus on, on the students, to, or the, the publishers, sorry, the writers to not submit their work there. And they said that they couldn't do it because, uh, and because their prestige is, their you know, promotions are kind of on the line and if they get their uh, work published by Nature or Science, then they can move on. So there's kind of a, a back and forth where one blames the other and it's not quite clear what the way out is. Um, so that's the nature of the problem, but not a solution, I suppose. Now we're going to have uh, some time for clarifying questions, and if you guys are need to clarify them, that would be helpful. So again, for people who are still walking around, when I re-explain what a clarifying question is, it's a question, it means that you need to clarify something that you didn't understand something that they said, or you'd like a little more detail about it. So does anyone have any clarifying questions about that? In the, the concept of there are too few journals, or they promote sort of too narrow a writing style, any clarification around why do the journals matter, or it is, is, is why can't you publish somewhere else? What's, what's the, what keeps you in the journals? Is that? That people knew that their promotion was based off of their getting their articles you know, reviewed in prestigious journals, and so people felt that their hand was forced, and so it's, a lot on the line. Uh, you were talking about ways that people could chip away, like small ways, at like the academic mold that they were in. Um, as someone in academia, I'm just wondering what you came up with because I want to do that. Um, we talked about a few things. Um, one person uh, talked about how he teaches class quite horizontally, so like a collaboration on syllabi and um, collaborating with students and how we can learn differently, so redefining kind of teaching and learning. Um, others talked about bridging their activism and their research and their teaching all at once, so essentially you can be the person who, uh, it's your job to be an activist and hang out and take your students to protests and things like that, but um, that can be problematic. Um, um, one thing that was brought up, and it was interesting in relation to our earlier discussion on post-disciplinarity, was 
thinking about an institution like the law school, there was a guy from the law school in our group, and he was talking about how post-disciplinarity seems kind of beyond the, or it just doesn't seem to be the issue at all when you have a professional school. The issue would then be articulating the, the connection between that institution and the operations of the larger economy and larger political structures. But him being at the law school and them having very established recruiting systems, that uh, gave him an opportunity to start this thing that they're working on now where they try to have like a propaganda campaign against people who are kind of wanting to keep their options open and they're encouraged by the law school to keep their options open by going for these uh, first year uh, early interviews and and people who may be open to doing public interest law kind of get pushed into this for fear of not having uh, any opportunity if they don't do it then. So they're trying to counter that with a, a small campaign and that's very specific to the law school. There was also the issue of like, lack of selfishness you brought that. Uh, uh, the argument was very interesting. Uh, he was saying that if you, you know, engage in Occupy, then you take time away from your research and you're not perpetuating you know, the, uh, the academic system by through your person, you know, in, in such a way. Um, just, did you talk at all about what the consequences or value would be of publishing in um, in non-academic settings? Like, like a lot of academics use Twitter or use blogs or, um, I don't know, David Graeber's published on Infoshop.org. Like, um, so did you talk at all about what the consequences or like both good and bad of publishing in outside of the, those journals? <laughs> So um, we, we talked some, about something similar to that. Uh, one person uh, was mentioning that she, she works in biology, right? And um, uh, their system, I mean, they were like considering moving to a different peer review system uh, and adopting one from physics where they pull together papers in, a, in an archive. And, but there is resistance in the field, in their field, not to do that. So this would be similar to your question in that, you know, resistance inside academia prevents moving on to a different publication system altogether, including Twitter and, and so on. So we approach that question from that perspective. I think we're out of time for that, but uh, thank you for being spokes. Thanks for the questions. And the next uh, group up, I guess, is you. Representation and collective action. So I'm representing representation and collective action. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of interesting people in our group. We had people from industrial workers of the world, postdocs, retirees, fired people, students, anthropologists, occupied people, anarchists, non-anarchists, uh, Lucy Parsons House people, House Assembly people, uh, kind of an eclectic group. And uh, we first off, we focused a lot about money and issues of, you know, should we have money or should we try to get rid of money? But then at the end of that discussion, it seemed, you know, the real issue is, you know, what should we do with money now that we have it? How do we use it effectively in uh, activist movements? And how do we try to kind of work in the system? Uh, there was a lot of focus on growing organically. Um, we also talked a lot about history 
examples where people had kind of gotten rid of money temporarily, such as in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Um, so trying to look at our history and trying to look at patterns of trying to change our greater social structure, trying to change a community. And uh, that also went to a kind of a talk about immigrant groups and how, you know, we always try to do changes kind of radicals a lot of the time, but sometimes change can come from groups that are really orthodox, like our, you know, immigrant parents or people from seemingly traditional backgrounds, but are still, they're still doing things that can be very against the larger capitalist system. Uh, such as sharing, community dinners, that kind of thing. Uh, so you don't always have to be a radical. Um, and also, we talked a lot about the MBTA movement, you know, against the, the cuts, which is a very pertinent issue in Boston at this moment. So I think one of the real conclusions was, you know, you should just get out there. Try to do things, you know, get on. You can even join movements that are already existing. Uh, just try to, you know, work from the ground up but try to engage your environment as fully as possible and try to change it as much as you possibly can. And so from the individual, uh, go to the collective. So yeah, I think that's basically it. If anyone, you can just open up for questions. Um. Thanks. Since you mentioned the MBTA, uh, and this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart, could you say a little bit more about what the nature, what people were saying about that, and maybe mention the upcoming important um, dates that have been uh, you know, people have been trying to organize around? I think there's there's a big rally April fourth, right? At um, at uh, State House, yeah. So you can rally, you know, try to occupy the State House. And uh, a lot of the issues that came up with MBTA were interesting. Uh, there is the issue where the people uh, that were arguing that the MBTA has to pay off the massive debt. People were saying, you know, we have $8 billion in debt on the MBTA now, mostly from the big dig, and now from the interest that's piling up because the MBTA just doesn't have, you know, they don't make enough money off of the fares and all that. And then there was also the idea of, you know, why should the MBTA be paying this debt? And a lot of people in power will say, you know, it's because this debt is connected to a lot of bonds and stuff that are held by retirees and pension people. But then at the same time, it was said, you know, what's happening around the world, or in the United States at least, with a lot of pensions and all that stuff, is the government really isn't interested in that. And it seems to be just really an excuse to shut people up. Um, so one of the big issues was how people, I mean, a lot of really good working people are kind of taking on debts that aren't theirs, but it's kind of, it's shown to them in a way that it seems like it's their responsibility. So it's just exploitation gets perpetuated in that manner. And also the idea is, you know, we should view transportation as being a public good, trying to create more of a commons identity where we don't feel like we need to, you know, we need to pay for these services. We should feel as if they're obligated to be provided for us if, you know, we're hard-working people. I'm, I mean, we have limited time for clarifying questions, so I'm... Anyone else have a clarifying question? Yeah. 
were obviously very clear. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, next and last, since I guess we didn't have a fourth group come together, work in the economy. So this is, this is work in the economy, um, and I'm going to try to sort of summarize. It was a, it was a long and ranging discussion, and so I'm going I'm to pick out points in sort of two groups, even though these were sort of interleaved as we discussed. The, the first group is what are the big questions, and then the second group is what are the tools and techniques that, that we might use to, to solve problems. Um, so in terms of big questions, there was sort of broad agreement, or at least a lot of people saying um, that you know, capitalism has brokenness to it. There's a, a big um, conversation back and forth around Keynesianness, uh, you know, is flawed, core sort of microeconomic teaching or macroeconomic teaching is, is flawed, debt matters, Keynesian doesn't work in an international way. There's also sort of a, a discussion about what the, what the goals of the economy should be. There was, someone uh, shared the quote about Henry Ford and the goals of the corporation should be to provide the, uh, to build a good product and provide the best wage possible for the workers. Um, and there was also a conversation about sort of, there's a lot of non-capitalist parts of the economy um, and is it plausible to just knit those together um, into, into desirable structures. Um, there was some discussion about jobs going away um, and questions of whether um, innovation um, in improvements in productivity lead to a reduction in jobs or whether that's sort of a mistaken understanding of what's going on. I don't know that there was an answer on that. There were a couple of divergent conversations there. In terms of what the economy, what do we want from our economy, um, the, the sort of big citation was Michael Albert's economic vision which, and I'm not sure I get all of these, but, but talks about uh, solidarity, um, equality, efficiency, and self-management, and, and has sort of provides a framework for thinking about whether an economy is, is being run in a correct way. Um, and there was also some discussion about the fact that the economy is only sort of part of the world, um, and we, we should stop thinking about the economy as one major component of, of our world and start thinking about it as a small part in the middle, specifically saying that you have the environment and then within the environment you have a society and then we, that society has to be supported in order for it to create an economy and the economy is really the smaller sort of central part that results once you have a functioning environment and economy. So we also talked a bunch about tools and techniques. Um, a lot of conversation about worker co-ops, community supported agriculture and similar structures. Also about unions, sort of more traditional worker uh, organization. Uh, talking about that both domestically and internationally, uh, some conversation about how international adoption of unions might reduce uh, job act jobs going overseas, also discussion of, of straight-up tariffs to drive independence from foreign goods. Um, there was also a discussion of, uh, redistribu of, of very redistributive processes, uh, specifically basic, guarantee basic, basic income guarantee um, which is uh, the, the notion that, that everyone should be provided with a, say, $15,000 income um, as part of a redistributed tax system. Um, some conversation about uh, uh, using zero emissions or perfect food sustainability, particularly in, in very localized areas, in order to drive good thinking, the idea that if you really target zero emissions, you eventually, you can do a lot from having gone through the exercise, even if zero emissions itself isn't perfectly uh, achievable. Also some discussion of looking to what we called uh, euphemistically imperfect states, 
um, which might have, have other ways of approaching these problems. Um, Cuba and the way that they do medical education, um, Bhutan and their happiness index, um, not necessarily whether those are, those are at least worth looking at. Looking at. Um, some kernels of agreement that uh, we shared, though I don't know that we, we got to full consensus, but the idea was that we may be able to pick out from all these different techniques some overlaps uh, where people are uh, in general agreement that corporatism is a problem, that campaign financing or the, the fact that uh, politicians are not uh, beholden to their voters, they're beholden to their uh, funders is, is a problem, that sustainability is probably a good thing. So trying to maybe pick out those kernels, but, but it wasn't, it's not like we came out with the correct set of five kernels of agreement or, or quite got to that point. And then we sort of ended and there was some discussion about, and I think this gets back to the MBTA question, the idea that capitalism is already socialized, that, that if you have a 401k, you're a capitalist, um, and some discussion about how pension funds have a fiduciary duty to workers, um, which can lead to the, the same pension funds having an obligation to put those workers out of work in order to maximize returns um, on, on investment. So the idea of capitalism is already socialized and that we're all participating, um, but maybe not in a completely empowered way. Any clarifying, any clarifying questions? Uh, I'm wondering if you discussed about, you know, practical, you know, ideas of getting beyond the conclusions you've reached that capitalism is, you know? So I think one of the places we got at the very end of the discussion was in some ways trying to take seemingly opposed ideas or, or seem sort of uh, dichotomies. We, we talked a little bit about local production and then um, global industrial production. We talked about the role of the state versus sort of more homespun Gandhian ideas of production. Uh, and I think we also got to a place where we started entertaining that not only alternatives to capitalism but, but multiple models. and, and uh, Tom talked about uh, sort of fairer, fairer forms of capitalism. Uh, we we talk, talked a little about Keynesianism. Uh, someone was talking about state capitalism in China. And I think sort of weighing some of these models and, and looking planned economies, entertaining Cuba. And although in some ways we touched upon these things very briefly, I think there was kind of an, inter uh, an interest in getting beyond what often seemed to be uh, terminology that are they're exclusive of each other and having a more integrated perspective on these things. And I think that towards the end there was, there was some nice challenging going on between people that were uh, the CSA model, the uh, Community Supported Agriculture, I think that's actually what that stands for, right? Okay. <laughs> um, is to whether or not, you know, where that fits into, into a model. It exists in some ways outside the, the capitalist system. And I think we were beginning, only beginning, but to kind of have a little more integrated understanding of, of some of these terms that often get played against each other. Any other clarifying questions? Thanks.
So um, we're, we're near the end. Uh, before I turn the mic back over to David, who's going to respond in some way to some of this, or maybe not respond, ignore it, and talk about something else. I just uh, I want to thank him, but I want to thank all of you on behalf of all the organizers and all of us who are here for, for staying here with us for over four hours, almost five hours now. I think we could, this is something that we could have done in two hours. You know, we could have planned this for a two-hour, three-hour period, but I hope everyone's appreciated kind of being able to stay in this space for a sustained period of time and, and talk about these issues and talk to each other for, for a whole afternoon. So thanks for that. And I'm going to pass the mic back to David. <laughs>